There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Maths Hysteria. My name's Omar Abid. In this very special episode, we'll be talking about coercive control. It's a topic which has come up on both the Australian and UK version of the series over the last few years, and a lot of our listeners have found their own relationships, previous and current, reflected on screen. So we thought it's something we should talk about. In the first interview, myself and my co-host Sarah Clark, at Sarah Clark Celebrates on Instagram, will talk to the fantastic Mel Schilling, one of the experts from the Australian and UK version of the show, who gives amazing practical advice for spotting red flags or how you can help someone who you think might be involved in a coercive relationship. In the second interview, myself and former co-host Kelly Rickard, yes, we've been working on this episode a while, talk to comedian and barrister from the Bailey Legal Comedy Law podcast, Chris Keogh, about the legalities of coercive control relationships. I'd like to thank Mel and Chris for giving us their time, but also a thank you to Sarah and Kelly for opening up about their own relationship histories. If you find this episode useful, please share it with anyone else you think it might help. Thank you. So joining us for this very special episode, we're thrilled to have Mel Schilling, one of the experts for many years on Maths UK, Maths Australia. Hiya, Mel. Hello, Omar and Sarah. What a delight to be here. You know I'm a huge fan of your pod. Oh, how sweet are you? Well, we're a huge Uh fan of you. (laughs) I said on my Instagram today, I'm talking to somebody I've got a bit of a girl crush on. (laughs) (laughs) love it love it no truly i i never miss one of your apps in fact i learn a lot about our show from listening to you guys so thank you (laughs) wow i'm shocked i I think the big thing this year is for god's sake give them some sharpies 
<laughs> I know, right? That fine pen is so hard to read. I'm going to take that feed feedback and give it to the producers. <laughs> We've got some hard hitting feedback from the from the uh, yes, hard hitting. So I think where we wanted to start was I'm sort of uneducated in the whole toxic relationship coercive control realm, uh, but what I've discovered is it's quite a diffuse thing. It's often quite hard to to pin down what. What is a a coercive control in a relationship? Do you have a definition or or key things that you look for? Mm. Yeah, well, it really is a very um, strategic and intentional type of behaviour. It's not something that happens by accident, for example. It is something that is very well thought out and executed. Um, it really is a an ongoing pattern of emotional abuse. It's not a one-off, you know, it's not being a little bit nasty one day. It is a sustained pattern of emotional abuse that goes on over a period of time. It's all about using control. It, it's often associated with narcissism, um, not always, but quite often when coercive control is showing up in a relationship, it is common for the perpetrator to be someone who has narcissistic tendencies as well. So that is quite common. Um, we often see the women, and I, I use, I'll use women here because it is most often women, but it's not always, the women or the, the victims of, of coercive control tend to fall between the ages of 18 and 29. That would be the age group that the research shows are most at risk. And really what it all boils down to is an imbalance of of power in the relationship. So you'll often see us calling out dynamics on married at first sight, for example, where we see there's a power imbalance. You know, you might see us saying things to a couple like, oh, this is a bit like a teacher-student relationship or a parent-child relationship. And those are often those early warning signs that there's a power imbalance going on in that relationship. I found it really interesting when you said about 18 to 29. I've never heard that before because I'm quite interested in this arena. And um, I work with a charity called Tender. I don't know if you've heard of them who help educate children and young people. It's fascinating. But Mm -hmm. that 18 to 29 is interesting because do you think one of the factors is often people are in their first serious committed relationship and they Mm -hmm. don't realise that the behaviour is abnormal or toxic because this happened to me if you mm-hmm. have your first relationship and someone treats you a certain way you think oh maybe that's just what boyfriends do maybe that's what you're yes. supposed to expect from a partner for them to want to control your outfit example for a night out to tell you what's appropriate or not and you don't realize it's controlling behavior because maybe with that age that age bracket it's younger people finding their feet working out what's normal yeah, I, I would think you're absolutely right. And I would suggest that if we really dug into the data, it would go much broader than this age group because I think you're possibly right in that when a first or formative relationship is toxic, you can develop this sense of, oh, well, that's normal. And, you know, it does start to impact your self-esteem and some of that self-talk can become, well, this is what I deserve. I deserve to be in second chair in a relationship, for example. And then often you'll go on to repeat that relationship, you know, numerous times throughout your life, dating the same person in different clothing because that's what you think you deserve. So, you know, sometimes that can be the beginning of a lifelong pattern that's not particularly helpful. And you see that on maths a lot, don't you, as experts? You see people come and say, I want a different type, and then they revert to form, and maybe there are patterns there. 
how how does that feel on the expert couch to see that play out so often? It's very frustrating. <laughs> but, but but to flip it, something that really excites me and, and, and I absolutely love it when I get to have these moments on the couch is when someone comes to us and says, this has been my pattern in the past and I want to do things differently. And when they actually do commit to that and when we give them the feedback and say, hey, I'm noticing your pattern coming up here, let's address it. And they take the feedback on board and do something differently. And that is, those are some pretty special moments for me. And as the viewer, Omar, don't we? We just love those moments. And we're like, fine. Yes. We understand the nuances of like, this is long, like years of behavior. And, you know, you can't break it in one week, but it's so gorgeous to see. Mm. The number of times people just do exactly the same thing that they've always been doing, but this time they're on TV. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and that's human nature, isn't it? That That is what we do. If we are left unchecked, we will do the same thing over and over and over. And really, it's the definition of insanity, isn't it? Yeah. Doing the same thing and expecting a different result, but we do it because it's comfortable. Absolutely. Just going back to the first answer, I don't just want to spend this interview asking you to define things, but you mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned narcissism, which I think is one of the terms that over the last few years, it's it, everybody gets called a narc, especially yeah. online. So firstly, again, what do you, how would you define that? But also, other than the practical things of the person who is controlling their partner, you know, they get their, they're in control of the finances and you know, practical mm-hmm. things like that. In an emotional, psychological sense, what's in it? What's in it for them? As a narcissist, yes, I think you're right, Omar. That the term narcissism has been overused, and I think the fact that it even has a nickname, narc, <laughs> online I tells us this is a nickname for like drugs. Yeah, <laughs> that is also it's, it's a nickname for that as well. So it's got this, you know, two very different meanings. But <laughs> yes, I am seeing it. You know, in in the current zeitgeist, it's it's used as narc, meaning narcissist, and I think probably you know eighty five percent of the time it, it's misused. It, you know, it's used to describe someone who has perhaps arrogance. You know, in the way that they communicate, and that's not narcissism. You know. I think we need to be clear that there there are narcissistic personality tendencies that we see. Then there is narcissistic personality disorder, which is a clinical term describing someone who has a pathology. But I think for our purposes, we're more talking about narcissistic tendencies that, that we can see showing up in normal relationships. And I think that is where a person is so self-absorbed and so lacking in empathy for their partner that every decision they make is self-serving and that can become very um it can become very covert as in undercover and subtle or it can be overt where you know they're basically just trampling all over their partner and and i just wanted to drill down onto that covert narcissism or or really covert tactics that can come across in coercive relationships because I think this is really important to call out because quite often you know many of your listeners may not even be aware if they could be in a coercive relationship because this stuff is so clever and it's so subtle Mm. so I find a helpful analogy is to think about you know boiling a frog (laughs) not something I do terribly often (laughs) it's really helpful here so let's just say we've got a pot of boiling water it's already boiling and we've got this frog, and we throw the frog into the boiling water, what's he going to do? Jump out. Right. He's going to scream. 
(laughs) (laughs) And he's going to jump out, flailing about, because it's already hot. The frog gets in the hot water and he has self-awareness that this thing is, is is a dangerous situation for me. I'm out. However, if we were to put the frog into the water while it's cold, then to turn on the heat and for it to gradually build up, the frog's going to stay there. The frog's not necessarily going to notice the water getting slowly, slowly, progressively hotter and more dangerous. Frog's going to be comfortable. Frog's going to boil to death. So are you a frog? (laughs) And if you are, what's happening to the water around you? So I guess to, to bring it straight back to relationships, if you go on a first date, and you meet this person and straight off the bat, they are demonstrating unsafe behaviour. They're being disrespectful towards you. They're being aggressive toward the wait staff in the restaurant, let's say. They're putting down people around you. They're laughing at the idea of violence. They're being racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, any of those sorts of dangerous behaviours. They would be overt warning signs. And that would be a good sign to get out (laughs) straight away. Do not continue. Be the frog jumping out of the boiling water. However, if you get into a relationship and it starts off really nice, in fact, maybe it starts off extremely nice. Maybe they're love bombing. And we've seen examples of this on Married at First Sight as well. Maybe they are showering you with compliments and affection, dropping the love word the album, as we love to call it on our show. (laughs) Maybe they are all over you in public. Maybe they are making you feel like the most loved and adored person on the planet. So that's often a starting point for a narcissist to build up that dependence on you um, for affection and, and validation. And then what will happen is the gradual removal of some of that love language and replacement with the controlling. Now, the way that coercive controllers or sometimes narcissists, let's just call them toxic characters, (laughs) the way that they execute their coercive control is very, very clever. And the reason it works is because it's the same techniques that are used in pokey machines. Do you have pokies here in the UK? Like poker as in like gambling? God, you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) A gambling gambling machine, yeah. Well, any kind of gambling, actually. Do you not have those machines you press the buttons and you put the money in? What do you call them? Uh, Fruit machines. Fruit machines. Fruit machines. Because they're often fruit that come. Yeah, okay. I feel like pokey is such an Australian, like, gun out the pokies from the servo. Oh, good accent. Well done, mate. Go to the servo. Exactly. We call them pokies because, of course, we have to shorten everything. Um, (laughs) I I guess it's based on poker, but they're not really poker. So you you get my drift. Fruit machine, fruit machine. So those things, and really most gambling is built on this concept in psychology called intermittent reinforcement. And basically that just means that you don't win every time, you win on a random circuit. So you don't know when the reward's going to come and that's what keeps you addicted. That's why you keep coming back. If you imagine that fruit machine, if it was going to give you a prize every third shot, 
you'd probably only do it a few times and then you'd get bored and you'd leave. The way you stay addicted and you stay sitting at that fruit machine for hours and hours and hours is that you do not know when that prize is going to come. So it keeps you engaged. And this concept has been proven time and time again in all different settings to keep you engaged, to keep you there. So when we think about relationships now, when that reward or those little love drops are given to you on an intermittent basis. So randomly, you don't know when the, you don't know when your partner's going to come home with flowers. You don't know when they're going to shower you with love and adoration. So it keeps you addicted. So what you might find in one of these coercive control relationships is the perpetrator across, let's say, across a week might demonstrate 60% abusive and controlling behavior but there's still a 40 percent of good stuff mm. you don't know when it's going to come so you're going to stay in there because as they're abusing you emotionally you're thinking oh but that was so good yesterday they bought me flowers or they gave me this beautiful compliment or they said something really beautiful about me on social media so you get addicted and you 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 stay hanging in there because there's that 40%. Maybe it's 30, maybe it's 10. Maybe in some relationships it's only 1% of good stuff, but you're hanging in there because the good stuff is dangling like a carrot. And this is the effective way that coercive controllers keep their partner engaged. Wow. So clarity for our listeners, Melden likes to talk about specific couples, but what you said there really reminded me of Brad and Shona where when they were leaving, one of the things that struck me was she said, most of the time it's it's amazing. It's there's such great highs. And I thought mm. that's that's what well, you said it was almost like a calling part of it. Yeah, and I feel like often because it is women and we like to feel like we can nurture and fix people, I think quite often you think you're seeing the real person in the 10%. Let's say it's 1090. You feel like in that 10%, you have a special relationship with them. You have an intimate relationship. You feel like in that 10%, they're revealing their true self to you. And if you could only stay and help them, that 10% would become the 90. But actually in the 90%, they're revealing their true character to you. And the 10% is when they're working really, really hard to keep you in the relationship. Does that sound about, about right, Mel? Yeah, that's right. And what this relates to in the I don't like using the word victim here because it sounds so disempowered, but really in this case, this is a disempowered person. So let's just use victim for, for that purpose here. In this case, the victim is, is grappling with self-esteem and really what they're looking for are, you know, if you imagine you have an emotional bank account in your relationship and every time your partner puts you down, they make a withdrawal. Every time they build you up, they make a deposit. So that links directly to the victim's self-esteem. So you can imagine how variable their self-esteem is in this relationship. It is going up and down depending on the way their partner behaves. And that's a really unhealthy place to be in, um, to have anything really external um, determining what your self-esteem is going to be. So really, you know, one of the underlying messages here for someone who might be in a coercive controlling relationship is to start to look for other ways to validate yourself, 
preferably from within, but if you don't have the internal resources to do that, maybe you can look to your your loving friendships or or family members outside of that relationship to start getting that support. Mm. Well, actually, I was going to say that, again, thinking of Brad and Shona, that the perpetrator, I think, tends to weaponize that that mechanism because they create a siege mentality of why do you need external validation so that they try and yeah make siege mentality so it's us against them and distancing you yeah. well would you say a classic sign of a toxic relationship is the partner trying to distance you from your friends and family because obviously a lot of the validation you might be getting and the outside influence and opinions is from close friends and family and obviously they would drip by drip try and separate you from those people Mm, absolutely. And and you've tapped into one of the, the techniques that coercive controllers use. So why don't we dive into those now? And, I, and I've got four that are yeah. the really common ones. And one that you've tapped into there is limiting autonomy. And a big part of that is separating them from their support network. So isolating, really isolating their partner so that they become even more dependent um, on that relationship for all of their needs to be met. So yes, putting down their friends and family is a classic one. And you will see that in these relationships um, to try and keep them very much to themselves, if you like. The devaluing the friends is a really good one, I think, for people to people who are listening to watch out for. You know, if your partner is constantly putting down your friends or your family, devaluing the support they're giving you or the advice they're giving you, really, that should be a watch out. Because, you know, your support network is integral to, you know, your you being a fully functioning person with a good level of well-being. So if they are putting down those sources of support, that should be a watch out for you. The second one relates to technology and tracking. And I think this one has become so, so prevalent, you know, in the last five, even three years more so. Um, and it's not just through, you know, putting a Find My Friends or a GPS tracker on your phone, but monitoring your social media. Um, you know, I often hear couples saying that, you know, um, my, my partner doesn't doesn't um, approve when I like someone of the opposite sex, their post. Um classic controlling behavior um you know and often you'll see real double standards here where the perpetrator themselves has <laughs> carte blanche to go out there and like you know people in their bikinis on social media but if their partner does anything of of the sort they'll come down really heavy on them so that real monitoring you know I, i've i've heard examples of I can't believe it. My, my partner's amazing. He loves me so much that he just turns up wherever I am, <laughs> you know, and okay, warning sign, that ain't love. <laughs> and it's not a coincidence, you know. So that's part of the, that's part of the second one, the sort of like technology tracking. Okay, fascinating. Yes, yes. The third one relates more to intimacy and sex. And you'll you'll often hear um, people say, you know, my partner wants to really control what I wear, 
to bed, for example, how, you know, what kind of, of sex we engage in. It's all on their terms. Um, and obviously, you know, consent plays a big role in this as well. You know, you might see, for example, that if the the dominant partner or the, the perpetrator in this case has their own specific needs or kinks, that they are inflicting those on their partner and sometimes it is non-consensual. So that is certainly something to be aware of it all comes back to boundaries, you know. So if you're listening and you are in a relationship where um, the, the sexual side of the relationship feels like it's encroaching on your boundaries or where you feel like you're being pushed beyond what you're comfortable with, that should be a watch out for you. Um, and then the final one relates to monitoring of, of health um, and body and, you know, we often see this one um, in, the, in the fitness or weight loss realm where, you know, a partner is literally monitoring your calorie intake or is, you know, going to the gym and with you and controlling what you're doing for the purpose of controlling the way you look. And this often links to the what you're going to wear as well. You know, if you have a partner who is, you know, restricting or trying to to dominate what you wear and how you look, if they're constantly putting you down for your weight or for your, you know, um, fat content and what you're eating, those can be real watch outs um, because that's not about loving you. You know, they, they might dress it up in, oh, I just want you to be healthy. But if they're doing it in a way that is dominating or controlling you, then that is about the way they want you to look and the way that they believe other people will perceive them based on how you look. It's about them. It's not about you. And I also, so this is a really strange one. So I was in a, I was in an emotionally abusive relationship in my early twenties. <clears> there were like look back, and it's 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 harrowing for me, but but I'm so pleased that I went through it in a way because it means I can understand. Uh, there were things like my ex boyfriend didn't want me at certain periods to shave my legs, and that was because he thought it prevent me from cheating on him because he thought if I wasn't shaving my legs, which he pretended he liked, it was. Uh, a sign that I wouldn't stray. It was things like that controlling even my hygiene, what I wore. And it's it's so, it's it just creeps into every area. And like the boiling the frog analogy, I've used that myself because it would start in a way of things that I felt were his way of protecting me. So it was like, oh, I don't want you talking. We were at uni at the time when we started dating and it was like, I don't want you talking to him. I don't trust him. He seems like a strange character. And once he knew that I listened on that, he would do it with different people and see who else I would stop talking to. So like you say, it's like boiling the frog. I love what you said there about if I listened to him on that first point, mm -hmm. then he'd escalate it to the next one. And I think this is part of the strategy that coercive controllers use. They'll test, they'll test the water. They're very smart in the way that they execute. So they will throw out a low stakes opportunity to control you. And it might be about um, the coffee, the way you have your coffee, for example. It's low stakes, doesn't really matter that much. You know, they might be suggesting that maybe you should try oat milk instead of soy milk next time. And so they, they'll, they'll put out these little bids, these little opportunities to control you. And it's an experiment. They'll see how you respond. You respond to that. They go, oh, okay. So I ticked that box. I'm going to escalate to the next one. We've done coffee. Now I'm going to suggest that the way she's wearing her hair while we're having coffee doesn't really suit her face. I'm going to see how she responds to that and so on and so on. 
Something I was reminded of uh, when, when you were talking there, Sarah, was something Peggy said this series in reference to Luke. And this isn't to cast aspersions about Luke. It's just more that, um, about what Peggy said, that because he he reacted violently towards Jordan, it showed the depth of his of his feeling. And I know that really... That oh, it really, it really triggered me. It really triggered me in a way of like, that's so unhealthy to think that like anger shows love or not being able to control yourself in violence towards other men or people around you. So yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Although I think mm. I can guess what they would be, Can I tell you, I remember exactly where I was when I was listening to your pod and heard you talk about this because I was walking along, I was on a power walk with my dog and I was nodding as I was listening to you guys in agreement. Um, Yeah, I I think you picked up on something um, really clever there um, and that is, you know, how do we define um, showing love? And, you know, obviously for everyone, that is based on our own experience, often on our family of origin, you know, the way our parents express love to each other. And that becomes our, our comfort and our normal, whether it's, whether it's good for us or not. Um, it becomes comfortable because it's normal. So if, if that has been modeled for us, whether that's in our families of origin or previous relationships, or, you know, even if it's something that we've really resonated with watching other people's relationships, and that could be a parasocial relationship. It could be something we've watched on TV or in a movie. For some reason that has, you know, become part of our normal, then that's how we then start to talk about relationships. So, you know, when we hear someone say that, oh, they express their love by getting aggressive, that might be normal for that person. But when we take a step back, look at this in the broader context of what is a healthy relationship for the general population, we'd have to say that, no, that is not actually a positive way to express your love for someone. About the differences and how this shows up in different genders, because obviously we've talked about quite heteronormative, like it's often the guy, yes. Well, but often, obviously, you've got gay relationships, and you've also got sometimes it's the woman who's more toxic. I know that's more unusual, but is it does it show up differently? This coercive control, if it's a woman Mm. towards a man or a woman towards another woman, um, in Mm. a gay relationship, are there other clues and red flags to look out for? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point, Sarah. You're right. And we have been talking about heteronormative relationships to this point. And what I should say is when I talk about perpetrator and victim, that's not necessarily about gender, but it is about the dominant personality and the submissive personality in a relationship. And of course, when we look at gay relationships, generally speaking, there is one more dominant partner, one more submissive partner. Um, And that's just across the board. It's even in the animal kingdom, you know. So that's generally what we find. Even when two alphas come together, like my husband and I, one tends to be dominant in some situations and the other takes dominance in others. So, you know, we typically see that when we have a pairing of of two beings coming together, one tends to dominate in in some situations more so than others. So, yes, if we take gender out of it and just look at it in terms of relationships, if we were to hone in on a female taking that coercive control role, you're going to see very similar behaviours because it isn't about gender. It's not even about sex. It's about control and it's about abuse, abuse of power, is really what all of this discussion we're having today boils down to. It's abuse of power. So, you know, you might find that that women have a more underhanded approach. Women might be, for example, a little bit more covert 
are less less overt in the way that they dominate. There could be more of that undermining behaviour, more subtle, perhaps passive-aggressive demonstration of this behaviour, whereas a male, and of course I'm generalising here, but a male might be more overt, might be more physical and demonstrative in the way that he seeks to control his partner. So going back to an earlier point, if friends have been distanced, if you're the friend, how do you then get through to the person who is the victim without seeing? Because this is something that comes up on maths a lot is friends are often shown, and, you know, partly it's the edit and everything, but they're, they're shown as very interfering, domineering people. You know, they're often accused of being jealous. Oh, I wonder if they've got a partner, all that kind of stuff. But when we're talking about serious issues like this, how, how do they get through that, um, that close that gap that's been created? Mm-hmm. Brilliant question, Omar. I think this is really important for people listening. <clears throat> the number one rule, if you have a mate and you think they're in a coercive controlling relationship, is don't criticise their partner. It feels counterintuitive because it would feel like the obvious thing to do would would be to go alarm bells, alarm bells, get out, you're unsafe. Of course, if it is so extreme that you think they are physically unsafe, absolutely do that. But if you're observing some of these frog boiling techniques that are gradually happening, like they're starting to isolate you as the friend from them, really important that you don't go in on attack because chances are your friend will have their defences up. They are going to want to protect that relationship at all costs because if they are in an unbalanced relationship like we're describing where they're maybe only getting 20 or 10% good stuff and the rest is really rotten, then they're going to be very defensive because there's a lot of shame associated with being in a relationship like this. So if you go in on attack, you're just going to get the defence from them. It will not be effective. So you need to try something different. The ideal approach here is to talk about your friend, not their partner, but to talk about them. So, for example, I'm feeling a bit concerned about you. I'm noticing you don't seem particularly happy at the moment. Or I'm a bit concerned. I've I've noticed that we're not catching up as much as we used to. Those sorts of things. Talking about the way it impacts your relation, your your friendship is really important. And concerns about their own well-being, independent of the relationship, can be really effective too. I think that's a really good point as well, because I know that if you're in a coercive relationship, sometimes the perpetrator can be monitoring your conversations in terms yeah. of reading your social media or demanding honesty from if you've met up with a friend or did they criticize our relationship they don't respect Mm. us and it can mean that they force you to sort of isolate yourself from that specific friend I think that's really really helpful tips for the friend just to talk Mm. about how their friend is feeling and then there's no chance of the perpetrator feeling like their name is being used for our listeners, after this interview, we're talking to um, comedian and barrister Chris Keogh about the legalities mm-hmm. of things. And one of the questions I asked him is like, if you think you are in that situation, how do you feel like collect evidence? And his advice was, don't, because you basically, if they find that, you're creating mm-hmm. serious problems for yourself. 
Well, it's it's a really grey legal area, isn't it? It's it's really tricky, um, and I'm I'm so glad you're talking to a legal person on this as well because that's certainly outside my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. But I I know that that would be so tricky for a person from that legal perspective. Can I ask just as it is such this is such a helpful practical conversation? Can I ask about you know people are going out on first dates, second dates, and just testing the water with different personalities? You know, you've got Bumble, Tinder, meeting lots and lots of people. Are there any, I know it can be covert and overt, but are there any little red flags that might show early doors and would help people save a lot of heartache by spotting them? Can you name a couple of things to look out for that might be quite covert, but helpful to know? Sure. I I generally talk about red flags in two categories. One are universal red flags and the other is personal red flags. So the personal ones are individual and different for everybody and tend to be based on your own values. So if I'm a person who really values, let's say, health and honesty, then I'm on a first date with someone and, you know, I'm talking about my healthy lifestyle and they're turning their nose up at it. You know, they order deep fried chicken with a side of uh, loaded fries and a full fat Coke and I'm sitting there having my, you know, my my vegan parfait with a tomato juice <laughs> and I start to realise that, you know, this person lives a lifestyle that is not about health. In fact, it contradicts this value of mine, then that's potentially a personal red flag. You know, if honesty is a value of mine and I, I, I catch them out on lies on that first date, then boom, those are red flags in terms of my personal values. And it means that a relationship with this person is not going to work. Then there are the universal or generic red flags. And these, I would argue, should be red flags for everyone. So these are those early warning signs of really problematic behaviour, and this is male or female, these are just human behaviours that generally indicate you don't want to be in a relationship with this person. So things like being abusive, being aggressive on a first date. So it might not be toward you, it might be toward other people. You know, I always say to people who are going on a date, watch the way your date treats other people, particularly people of lower status. So a person in a service role, for example, maybe it's the Uber driver, maybe it's the barista, maybe it's the person bringing the food. How do they relate to that person? Do they show courtesy? Do they show respect? Most importantly, it's about respect. How do they talk about other people, particularly people perhaps in minority groups? What kind of language do they use? Are you picking up on any kind of disrespect here? These can be warning signs of further problematic behaviour. Can I add one in there? I've heard it said that, you know, well, I know it to be true. If a guy, for example, is saying like, oh, all my ex-girlfriends are just crazy. There's the problem. Classic. The problem is them. Absolutely. That is a classic, Sarah, isn't it? And we've all dated that guy. We've all dated that person who says all their exes are psychos. You know, that, that beautiful term often comes up. They were, though. Omar, Omar, when you brought that up at our first date, I knew you were on the out. It was game over. Well, I was going to say, if you, go to, um, if you go to your wedding day and your bride asks you, I hear you've got a 22-year-old on the outside. Oh, red flag (laughs) all sorts of red flags there (laughs) 
Um, another another one on a first date is if you notice the the person cutting across what you would consider to be your autonomy. So let's say they they don't let you order for yourself. They cut across an order for you. These are signs of crossing boundaries um, and can lead to an attitude toward consent. Warning sign for me. So I think one problem, sorry, I think one problem is also I'm a huge diehard rom-com fan and I know it's been quite unhealthy in my life to have had those modeled to me sometimes. And I think sometimes there's a very fine line between romantic gestures and controlling behavior. So I can imagine if you go on a first date with an attractive person and they're like, I'm going to order for you, there's this amazing dish. And it's actually controlling your autonomy, but it's done in quite mm-hmm. a flash mm-hmm. sort of romantic way. Or if somebody, you know, starts a fight in the street to protect your, you know, oh, that guy looks like he's a... It's picking those moments and trying to be like the hero, but actually yeah. treading on your autonomy. Well, I think I'm thinking of, of Dan, of Dan and Sandy from last year's mm-hmm. uh, Australia, who he came across as almost the picture-perfect kind of player type we said that Kelly, who used to uh, co-host the podcast, she picked up on something really early on because it was so by the book kind of thing. And then as soon as they'd slept together, he was suddenly, he was out. And I'm not accusing him of any coercive control or anything like that, but just doing that that rom-com type gallantry. Yes, yes, like false gallantry. False gallantry yeah. just intended to make themselves look good or show mm-hmm. their dominance or what they know, not actually intended to make you have a better date experience or relationship. Yeah, yeah. Firstly, Sarah, I'd like to say I'm, I'm sorry about your being influenced by rom-coms. <laughs> sorry. Very sorry about that, darling, because that's really affected your life. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Look, I think that the best little um, test um, about whether or not it's false gallantry or whether or not, you know, them cutting across and ordering for you is okay, is checking in with your own instinct. How do I feel? How did I feel when that person offered to order for me? Did I feel flattered? Did I feel that it was uplifting and supportive? Or did I feel that it was a bit controlling? This is where you really need to build up that trust in your own instinct because it is built in there for a reason. It is your survival instinct, your intuition. You must listen to it. So if anything, you know, is a takeaway from this discussion, I'd suggest that it is starting to build up a level of trust in yourself, in that little voice that is deep inside you that is saying, warning signs, this doesn't feel okay. Um, and start talking to your friends about that. Check out your hunches. You know, a really good way to start building that intuition or that instinct or your gut feel, whatever you want to call it, uh, or your inner voice is to check it out with friends or to start journaling. Journaling can be a fantastic tool for building your intuition, writing down how you're feeling about things, checking back on it. Was I right? gathering evidence to support your gut instinct to check out how it's developing. Um, it's a muscle like anything else, and it's something that you can build. It's also something that drops off if you don't use it. Mel, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Feel free to share this with your friends if you're in a group of girls who's dating or guys who's dating. This is so helpful. The thing to look out for, how to build those healthy relationships. And do you have anywhere that people should go if they're looking for red flags in their own personal relationships? 
Yeah, certainly in the UK, I know Women's Aid is a fantastic charity that's very supportive, you know, of people who are in abusive relationships. And if, you, if you're unsure, if you want more information, if you need resources, go to loverespect.co.uk and that's a really great place to start. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a wonderful chat, really informative. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time. We're going to watch you tonight on Maths. <laughs> Such <laughs> a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. And we're actually seeing you tonight because it's a commitment ceremony. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this isn't going to date this episode, but I'm, I'm absolutely gutted about Ross and Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, me too. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Me three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we'd like to welcome to the podcast a very special guest, someone who I've listened to on his own podcast, Barely Legal, a comedy law podcast, uh, where it's basically two, two middle-aged men complaining, but, <laughs> but also they go into the details of various legal cases, uh, often stuff that's in the news. I really enjoyed the one about uh, discussing exporting people to Rwanda was a particularly notable notable episode but he's a, a barrister and also a stand-up comedian Chris Keogh welcome yay welcome uh, thank you thanks for having me it's good to be here I mean yeah. I, in literally my own dining room but you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's great to have you on because um the topic we're, we're talking about today is coercive control just before we started recording you mentioned you've uh, you've never watched any Married at First Sight, which is the programme yeah. that this, this podcast is based on. So, you know, thanks for doing some homework. We appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but you, what, do you watch any reality TV, dating, stuff like that? No, uh, not really. No, like, you know, as, as you'll know from everyone you listen to Fairly Legal, is that I'm, you know, one of the... I mean, I mean it's a bit of a sort of like lie on Boardman's behalf, like my co-host. Eli likes to make it that I'm leaving this sort of like bubble away from popular culture, you know what I mean? That you know, like can I wear a Jacobean rough and stuff like that, but it's not quite <laughs> that's that's not quite where I am. But it is true that I don't really know much about reality TV shows. I when I was younger, I used to occasionally dip in and out of them, you know what I mean? So I'm aware of the concepts of them. Um I do I tell you what I do watch, you know, these classes as well. Uh, I do watch the um the pottery throwdown thing, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, uh, and is there much coercive control on that? <laughs> <laughs> so I think what where I wanted to start with, um, because we've got you on for your legal expertise, and then I guess it will just go into more open discussion maybe, is legally, what is the definition of coercive control? Right, well, coercive control, it, it never used to be an offence until quite recently. Um, so there, there was no offence of um, coercive control. It was you had to try and rely on like harassment laws, um, which is you know causing uh, you know someone to, to fear harassment in essence, um, harassment to alarm or distress. So, but that was really difficult to do in a domestic setting because sort of like it was easy for the defendants or the accused to sort of say, well, the contact wasn't unwanted. We're married. You know what I mean? So it was. It, it's you know it was an easy way to, to get out of it. So they introduced this um, offence under the Serious Crime Act of 20, um, 2015, um, which effectively um, it's so coercive behaviour. I'm just looking at the, the, the CPS's website now is an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation, and intimidation, or other abuse that is often used to harm, punish, or frighten their victim. So it incorporates a lot of different types of behaviour. Um, and basically, the, the, the it's behaviour towards another person um, that effectively um, causes that other person um, see, had to have a serious effect on the other person, in essence. So it's quite vague in its definition. So it can include lots of acts that of themselves are, are offences, you know, like assaults, um, sexual abuse, all that sort of stuff. But it can include a lot of things that isn't on their own or in, in isolation, and offences are even particularly major issues you know what i mean so this is one of the difficulties that you have is that it's one of these crimes where victims aren't often aware they're being made victims of a crime um so so it's yeah it, it's so things like you know um financial sort of control um just generally undermining someone's confidence lots of things that these um like pickup artist dicks advocate doing our classic coercive controlling behaviour um, examples, you know what I mean, and would fall, would fall within the sort of definitions that are examples are given. So it's one of these areas where there's a non-exhaustive list of things that it might be, and you, what you've got to look at is the pattern of that over time and the effects on on the on the victim, basically. It was really interesting actually listening to you say that about sometimes somebody might not realise they're a victim because. In a bit of preparation for this interview, I thought I'd have a look at what came under the umbrella of coercive behaviour. And I was like, well, I've never been in a coercive relationship. And as I was reading through the list, I was like, I have, I have, yeah. I just didn't know it. Like, yeah. So and it was an ex of mine. And uh, very quickly after moving in with him, he was in charge of what I ate when I ate, when we were allowed to do a food shop, what we'd buy on the food shop. It was all around control of eating. Yeah. Um, but there was there was other stuff as well, like uh, gaslighting, which we didn't know was a thing then. And I just thought, oh, my God, it's it's all such a murky grey area that you could you could be in a relationship that was coercive and not know it. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people are. And I think, I mean, that applies to the wider sort of ambit of, like domestic abuse as well, to be honest with you, and domestic violence, you know, people often don't realise that it's happening or are, are sort of in denial that it's happening as well because of, of you know, various sort of social factors that make you feel like you you, you should you should know what's going on or, or, or you should be able to get out of that situation uh, where it's not always as easy to do that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it is a strange, um, it's 
you know, I, I suspect there's a lot more people are living with someone who is coercively controlling them or at least attempting to uh, without them realising that's going on. A good example is in, in the, have you seen the latest series of Happy Valley? Um, yes. Last one. So, I, he, you know, that teacher, he's, I mean, obviously it's hammed up because they make it obvious. But things like, you know, I put in the, the lawyer in me, I want to watch things like this. It's like, I can't with it. It's like, they go through the house and they're like, oh, paddle up in the fridge. That's something, that's yeah. a red flag. You know, I, and just things like that. You know, it's really weird, but it's not, lots of people wouldn't necessarily think it was, they just think, oh, it's just what he's like. You know what I mean? It's, it's a bit weird. You know, because it's not actually violence that, it's not particularly insulting, but it is controlling you and someone saying, you will live on my terms in this house. In essence. Um, yeah. Before we go any further, I should have flagged this up at the beginning that you have uh, a lot of experience actually dealing with these cases in your in your um, professional capacity because you worked in house at the uh, with the police. Yeah. Um, and go on. Sorry, I was just going to say something you, you mentioned in that in that definition though that I wanted to to ask about is you said an act or acts. So I think my impression of, of controlling behavior would be, you think it's a pattern of things like you said, controlling finances, Kelly mentioned uh, eating, but an act singular, can, can anything legally be made of one, one instance? Cause I, I, that's Are something... you starting to panic about something? Yeah, I had a, I had a bad... <laughs> it was only a one off. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's got to be repeated or continuous engagement in behavior towards another in essence so yeah one-off things couldn't it couldn't be there it has to be part of what it doesn't have to be though is it doesn't have to be the same act over and over again i mean so it, it can be anyone you know from from any of this list of, of behaviors so and i say like the list is always not exhaustive just give examples of the sort of thing that you might want to be looking for um if, if you're you know if you're a copper going around for a visit or whatever so yeah, it's got to be like a pattern, continuous or repeated. So that suggests maybe even more than twice. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's got to be a bit, bit more than that because, you know, you, you do have to allow for, I suppose, people making mistakes within their relationships. Yeah. Um, and it is a sort of, you know, it, it is a, um, a negotiation, isn't it, a lot of the time? Um, and people working out how to be in relationships and all that sort of stuff. So it's totally for that. But I think it's where it's where it's, it's this continuous behaviour, and the other person knows or ought to know that it's causing harm. You know what I mean? That's the that's the other thing. Yeah, I found that bit fascinating when I read it because I was thinking back on this ex, and I thought I genuinely don't think he knew he was being coercive, and he would be gutted. Yeah to have that brought to his attention. I think yes. he thought he was being loving and caring. It was just that I had no say in that side of things. So yeah. in the sort of cases that you've worked on, has that been a defense that's used a lot that the person didn't know they were being coercive? Um, yeah, yeah. So obviously you've got, you've got two ways to, to you know, def defend this. In essence, one is to sort of say, well, none of these acts have taken place. You know what I mean? Like this is all made yeah. up. Or, or, you know, go no comment and prove it, prove that this has happened. And and this is the issue with these sorts of things. It's often one person's word against another. Although with, with sometimes with this, you know, there will be neighbours and friends and whatever who will have concerns with the things they picked up on. So you would want to build a case using that sort of evidence, in essence. Um, you know, there's not often like a clear sort of like smoking gun piece of evidence that, that, shows, that shows what's happened. Um, and the... 
And then another way to do it would be to sort of say that, well, I wasn't aware this was having any serious harm. I thought that it was fine. She never said anything that was wrong. Let's say she, it's often, it is yeah. often men against women. Um, and, and and so on and so forth. So, so you would do it that way. So that's where you've got this other issue of like, not only did, did it's either they knew or ought to have known. So it's like, you can't just say, I didn't know. If in all of the circumstances, they say, well, it should have been clear that, by you know stopping her from seeing her parents or her friends or whatever, it was going to be causing her some harm, you know. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's to allow for sort of like an objective look at the the facts and see whether or not the person ought to have known that that, that was the case. But certainly, the, the latter of those would be the way you would um, you would try and defend it. You know, it was often the case that well, I just thought it was all right. You know, that's an easy enough thing to say. Um, and this, you know, the, the difficult things to, to prosecute because because of the nature of the evidence. Like anything that's in a domestic setting can be difficult to prosecute because you often don't get the victim wanting to to give you evidence, which yeah. isn't the case with lots of other types of offence. But it is for domestic things. So there's that as well. Um, although I think I think with these it is slightly different in that once they realise what's been going on, there's there, there is there is this thing of. I'm happy being more happy to talk about it than, for example, where it's violence or whatever, which for some, for whatever reason, has this sort of stigma attached to it that you're a victim of domestic violence, you know, and people don't want to, you know, don't, don't want to sort of admit that. Is it, with these cases, is it rare that you see a case where it, it isn't attached to another offence, for example, assault? Because oh, it's, you know, normally I sort of, in my mind, I assume one leads to the other and then that's when it ends up being the police get, in, get involved because it's easier to, to identify bruises, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that's that's true to an extent in terms of when, when the police, when something would be flagged up, you know, is that often, you know, again, again with like issues of domestic violence, like it will often be neighbours overhearing an altercation next door who phoned the police and they go around turn up and find someone there with bruises. There's clear evidence that it's been a, an assault or a fight. Because, you know, it often, it often does go both ways, to be fair. Um, and one of them's come up worse. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and, yeah, neither of them are saying anything, you know? So, and, and that's when it becomes difficult. And that's when you might see other things. But I don't think it necessarily means that, just to, so I'm clear of what I'm saying, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, there's this spectrum and that domestic abuse is a gateway into domestic violence. I think sort of coercive control is probably a lot more prevalent than people realise. And lots of people that think they're otherwise all right because they don't knock the wife around or whatever, that they engage in it and don't realise themselves what they're doing, if that makes sense. That's not to um, give them a sort of like a moral sort of pass on it. Um, but I, I don't think it necessarily means that. I, I think they are separate types of behaviour. Albeit, someone who is violent will often also have these other types of things. You know, they'll often show. It's often evidence. There's lots of evidence of jealousy, wanting to know who you contacted, who's that, who you're out with, blah blah blah. Because a lot, most of it comes down to just insecurity, or a lot of it. I mean, put my sort of psychologist hat on now, but a lot of it comes down to sort of insecurity on the part of the offender um, and them not knowing how to actually engage with people on an adult basis you know so um yeah, I, also might there be an argument where, i'm just thinking about this argument that they, somebody might not know they're being coercive 
obviously we're in a bit of a shifting paradigm at the moment where we are thinking more about how women were taught throughout history. But I'm thinking of like our grandmother's generation. Weren't they all in coercive relationships? Like I just I remember my grandmother wasn't allowed to leave the house without my granddad. She wasn't allowed in a pub. You know, he held the purse strings because he worked. Um, so I wonder now, it's brilliant that we're recognising how women have been treated, but also are there lots of people waking up going, oh God, it was all coercion actually. Quite, quite possibly, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody who yeah. lived previously, but... Um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but... Um, I, I, I cert, yeah, I certainly think that the traditional sort of roles are based on on gender lines. Um, that a lot of that a lot of behaviour was probably controlling um, and would fall within some of the definitions that we have of what is controlling and coercive behaviour. You know, I, I think it's certainly true um, that yeah, that, that you know, men were the breadwinners and women like some of those. But then you know, maybe within some relationships, it was it was different in the yeah you know, the. You know, the, the man would go home and give the the wife the the money, and then she would be in charge of the housekeeping and and, and so on. And the and you know, and it and it was worked out on a on a level like that because you know the man was I suppose in some ways was as condemned to his role having to go and work yeah. down the mine or whatever it is yeah to him as she was from the state home look after the kids. But I, I think- certainly think that there are there's a lot of um, that this is very much like an, an emancipatory sort of your process um, where, where what was probably classed as being quite normal behaviour would never be classed as being abusive you know so I, th- I think as well just for me to get a bit uncharacteristically hashtag what about men here but I've definitely definitely seen men in coercive relationships um, I, I've, I've seen it play out where men have been encouraged to sort of estrange themselves from their families yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I see that pattern a lot where the wife yeah. is like, let's cut the mother-in-law out. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I wonder if there's more, Is have you found there to be more of a stigma attached to men coming forward saying that, that they've suffered coercion? I, I, I think I think probably, yeah. And um, certainly, I mean, that's definitely the case. We know that's the case when it comes to domestic violence. You know what I mean? And um, the, there's, there's definitely a stigma to, because of what you are expected to be like as a man, um, there's a definite stigma involved in anything that suggests there's some sort of weakness there, particularly if that's um, at the hands of a woman who, you know what I mean? So even for the most, I think, enlightened of men, um, this, even on a subconscious level, will sort of be there to some degree. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a definite thing of, you know, the classics sort of henpecked husband. Um, that would definitely come under the, the definition um, of it, like you say, where you're sort of estranged from your friends or you like cut out the sort of the man's family and all that sort of stuff. And um, but again, I, I, I suspect the, 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 there's probably a lot of men in that sort of relationship who don't even realise that they are. They just think that it's it's just how it is, you know. It's normal. Um, yeah, but it, and, and what I find interesting is like, is to what extent do you, do we think that it's all right for the state to intervene in this sort of stuff as well? You know, I'm a big believer that adults should be allowed to be in shit relationships if they want to be. You know, yeah. to some to some degree. You know, it, it is a, it is a free choice to the extent that anything is a free choice. Um, and it, and it's like, but that has to be. You know, so where where do you, where do you draw the threshold between when the state will get involved and when when it won't? And I think we'll probably find that we're in in a process of establishing where that is. You know, like um, over sort of like as cases develop and and it's deemed to be. 
um, you know, infringement on people's like private and family life and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it develops, I think. Well, that actually leads quite nicely into the question I was going to ask you, because if you're trying to build a case um, and you want to establish a pattern of behaviour, presumably there's access to, like you mentioned, financials before to see who's, who's in control of that. Text messages? Yeah, text messages are a classic one, yeah. Yeah, so like how, you know, how often is asking, where are you, what are you doing? Is, is five okay, but the sixth text message is, is the one too many, you know? The, the, well, it, well the, the, there will be, basically. And for the most part, you can, you can make it clear where there's, you know, like where someone... Because it's, it's sort of like... It's like harassment and stalking, but within a domestic setting, you know what I mean? And, and there, there will be overlaps and similarities in the type of activity and evidence that you're looking at, basically. Um, and, and often for, for those sorts of cases it'll be like hundreds of messages. You know, it, it'll be so obvious that that, you, that that it's overwhelming, you know what I mean? When you, when you print them all out and put them as an exhibit to a witness statement, you think, look at that, and just stick that in front of a jury or a magistrate and say, it's, it's clear, isn't it? You know, but where, where the law gets interesting, and this is what, what they say, was it hard cases made bad law, they say. So um, is, are the ones on the borderline where, you know, it could go either way. And like you said, there will be effectively, it depends on all the circumstances. So it would never be as prescriptive as, all right, that's seven messages now, that's enough. <laughs> um, but, the, the, you know, because you'd have to look at everything else around it as well. But effectively, there will be somewhere there's been fewer messages and that's been deemed to be coercive and controlling uh, more, more than others. So, you know, it depends on your motivation. It's difficult to prove a lot of this because a lot of it is to do with the effect it's having on someone and also someone's, um, mental state when they're doing that as well, you know, in, in so much that they, they, you know, didn't perceive that what they're doing, like I said, was causing harm, unless it was so obvious that it must have been, you know what I mean? So I, th I think those borderline cases will be difficult to to prove um, and possibly fall into the do too difficult to do pile <laughs> in, a, in a lot of instances. Uh, you mentioned the, the idea of, of masculinity. Uh, recently, especially on BBC, it seems every other day they're talking about Andrew Tate, uh, and yeah. you know, there's that sort of that sort of style of masculinity, I guess, that's becoming more um, well, certainly reported upon. But yeah. do, you, do you think the awareness around coercive control is what's is what's bringing it to light that there are there are only more people are more aware of it because they're more happy to talk about it. And then this this rise in masculinity, I call it masculinities, you know, the the, the pushback against that I suppose I've asked you quite a broad open thing there. yeah um, what, what is responsible for the rise of Andrew Tate um, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I suspect that there is some I, I, well personally I think all of those Andrew Tate and all that one are just snake oil salesmen who have spotted a gap in the market to be honest with you I think is what they are I think that they're all bullshitters um, and who are actually causing harm to boys I mean I like the idea that like this sort of you know, there was a, Andrew saying when he was like smoking a cigar whilst like wearing a decorative dressing gown and this was some sort of aspirational lifestyle. I was like, my fucking grandma used to do that. It's not that aspirational of a lifestyle. But um, it's, uh, yeah, but I, I certainly think that there is um, a very, and I think it's cynical to be honest with you, I think it's this um, cynically manipulated idea that you can't be a man anymore because 
what men are is this and that's illegal now because of all these wokes and blah, blah, you know, and it's just absolute, it's absolute nonsense. You know what I mean? Like, there are all sorts of definitions of masculinity. I think this simplistic sort of borderline sort of like rape culture definition of masculinity has never been one that's, that's been sort of, you know, wholeheartedly acceptable, not for a long time anyway. Um, and so this, the, I, so I, I think it is, I think it is a pushback against what is perceived, but I think it's more to do with just some cynical people being able to manipulate the internet now that social media gives them a bigger sort of platform to spout their crap on, mm -hmm. in essence. And that's that's what I think. Um, so, yeah. It, and, and also, it's like, if you're annoying those sorts of people, then it suggests that you're possibly doing the right thing as well, you know. So, um, uh, Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's answered your question. But no, no, it has, it has. It has, but um, have you seen a, like a, an increase in the number of cases with controlling behaviour that, you, that you've dealt with over the years? Well, it's, the thing is, it's, it's difficult to to really answer that because you you will naturally see an increase of it now that it's a crime. You know what I mean? Like it never used to right. be. Right, um, and so it wasn't something, it, it would be sort of in the background, but it wouldn't be something you would, because you, you couldn't prove prove it to any sort of like there was no offence there you, you wouldn't notice it and it would just be something that was that showed someone was the type of person who might commit other offences if that makes sense you know so the ones that were like domestic violence and so on you can sort of show it you know it doesn't paint them in a good light um, so I, I don't think I can really I'm not sure I can answer that to be honest with you because mm. it's it's certainly because it is a new offence and there's, you know there's not only was so it was only 2015 that it became an offence 2021 was the Domestic Abuse Act, which broadened the definition of abuse. So it always used to be domestic violence was, was the issue, whereas now they have an actual statutory de definition of, of domestic abuse. Um, and, and it broadened the scope of people that could fall under that as well. So, um, you know, it's not just people that cohabit, which is effective, but it used to be like husband. It used to be husband and wife, but once, once upon a time, and then... You know, as society has, has, has changed how we sort of like are in relationships, and that became sort of cohabitation, and that has now sort of changed as well to someone that you were in a relationship with, or you you, know, you are but you don't live together. You know, to, to sort of reflect all the different ways that people are in relationships away from this sort of standard sort of married two point four children sort of <laughs> um, back to basics. John Major family values style of, of uh, living the the. Um, the law has often perceived was was correct because that's what it should be. Um, so, so I think I think that we are now more likely to see more of this sort of behaviour being prosecuted because it's very much on the radar. So, how policing works is like you've only got a finite budget, so you, you sort of have um, certain areas of offending that are targeted. You know what I mean? And and whatever's new, and that will often come down from government to some degree. You know about what the sort of priorities are and, and so on. So, whenever there is so there's a, there's a definite push towards um, domestic abuse being something that the police should be involved with. And and so I think you will see more of that at the moment. Um, and then it, it remains to be seen whether that continues whenever there's, there's a new thing that is a policing priority. Right. And they feel like, oh, we've sorted this out. We now need to move on to burglary or whatever. And so, you, you, it, it, you know, the use of... Um, so arrest stats and, and recorded crime and all that is is real can be real and misleading. You know, it's because it, it depends on what the police are looking at and where they're well resourced, basically. 
So, you know, like you get areas that, for example, are a rough area, turn into lecture mode here, but you're going to tell this to my students all the time. But you get areas that are, you know, classes like rough areas where there's a lot of crime. So what happens is you, the police will put more officers in there to deal with all that crime. And there's more officers there, which means there's more people, there's more crimes being spotted, more people being arrested. So there's more crime in that area, which means you put more officers in. And there's this never-ending treadmill of, of, of you know, and meanwhile, there might be a similar amount of crime going on the next neighborhood along. But there's no one there to actually record that crime because they're all in this one area. So um, it, 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 that's how the figures can be really heavily skewed one way or the other. I do a lot of work with like a younger generation, sort of uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, drama workshops and confidence building workshops and stuff like that. And I see a pattern that they are so much more aware of things like mental health issues, um, yeah. but, but also so much more aware of Thick words we didn't even know, like codependency in relationships and, and, and things like coercive behaviour and gaslighting. So in the statistics, does that show that that generation would be more likely to come forward um, and bring about a case of coercion than, quite, say, quite, our yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I, I think that it's the thing about if you know what your rights are as well and you know what your value is as well, I don't mean by economic value, but by what? Well, you yeah. don't have to put up with you know what I mean so um, you are more likely to sort of come forward with it you know but I mean and, and hopefully it becomes I mean a lot of things sort of self-police as well you know what I mean like when if, if you know that it's that something's wrong and you're not going to put up with it and put a market there most people will sort of like react you know there's not many people that are dead set on this sort of course of action I think often people drift into things you know what I mean so I, I do think I'm, I'm very hopeful for like my you know, my daughter's, you know, my daughter's 12. I'm awful for the, her generation that they, yeah. you know, for, for all the, the, you know, the moralizing that the next generation are always the most corrupt or the most, you know, debased because of the music they're listening to or whatever. And we've got the issue of, you know, the impact of like everyone having access to hardcore pornography from a young age. You know, there's, there's, that is going to have some sort of an impact. But at the same time, I think, I think possibly to counter that is that, Girls, particularly, are much more clued up about what they will, yeah, they will stand for, um, and and so you, you might see that coming through in the figures in due course. But hopefully, what you might see is it policing itself, and the, and it just stopping it. You know what I mean? Earlier on, hopefully, that's you know that'd be the idea. Really. Yeah, fingers crossed. That would be amazing. Just um, just going back to building a case again, and and you mentioned getting testimonies from friends and family and things. How much credibility can that? Can that really have, uh, or is it just using a subjective, you know, measure again of? Well, so so what what you'll be looking at is you wouldn't necessarily be asking for like. So do you think what do you, what what is your opinion on this? What's happening? You would want evidence of incidents where they've come round and they've said this, or, or I've noticed she was very upset at this point, or that sort of um, those sorts of observations that that aren't based on. A sort of value judgment being made by the witness, you know what I mean? So, right. Um, and and, and because in and of themselves they're innocuous, it's not something that you would report to the police. But while you're building the case, like, again, something that I tell my students all the time is that if you're, if more my evidence students, anyways, like when, when you're building the case, like you've got like the scales, you know what I mean? And you're trying to get a tip in your favor. And you can do that either by having these big, massive, weighty pieces of evidence that really, you know, prove it beyond doubt. Or, you can you, you can do it by having lots of little bits that on their own don't weigh that much, but combined create the the, the sufficient weight of the case to, to convict. So um, 
when you're talking to like when I say I'm talking when you're talking to like friends and neighbours and family members and all that sort of stuff, it's really along those lines as well. You know, like someone who knows them well and can see changes in behaviour because because you're trying to prove that harm has been occurring as well. So you need to sort of evidence that, and that will a lot of that will be demeanour or you know. Like, so you know, she stopped getting in touch with me for no reason. I thought we'd fallen out, but I don't know why. And it turns out you can link that timing of them stopping getting in touch with a friend to when he started doing this, you know, and, and it's all of those sorts of things. And you might get evidence from, you know, a friend who can sort of say, no, she's disclosed this to me. You know what I mean? And and the, the value that you add to that is that, well, what would that person have? You know, so, so you know, how you, would, how, you, how, you do, how you would weigh that and the value of that evidence will be depending on after they've been cross-examined by the defendant, you know, and he might suggest... Well, you've always had it in for me, and you're just making this up, and you're, you know, gilding this somewhat, and it's not, you know, that's that's just the nature of the sort of like trial process, really. You know what I mean about how we how we assess the value of evidence, um, and you've you've got to you've got to sort of look at that when you're putting your case together. Um, but but yeah, so you know, it it is difficult though. You 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 are right in in so much that you know, and what you're getting at is that where the evidence is coming from, people who know the parties. Um, how independent is that evidence you know what I mean but yeah. like I say it's not always the case of you know it's not character evidence as such I've always thought the character evidence from a friend is is largely valueless you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you know like the number of times you see it like, like within the Me Too thing you know like we're all working sort of comedy so people's names being sort of banded about as having not necessarily committed offences but certainly like harassment type behaviour and the number of people that went like, oh, I've known him for ages and he's always been all right with me, so I don't believe this happened. I was like, well, of course. Well, yeah, but it's a different relationship entirely, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, you know, the, the quiet person next door always kept themselves to themselves. It turned out to be a serial killer. It's like, well, yeah, you don't, you, 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 you don't know. You only know what people, what they choose to show you quite often, you know what I mean? So, What's your advice to somebody who is in a controlling relationship and they want to try and help and build their case. What what would be ideal in terms of big weighty pieces of evidence or little numerous lighter ones? What what kind of things should they try and preserve so they have some evidence? And um, I, th- I think that I mean I'm going to be very careful what I say here to mention because um, I don't I don't think I think the advice would be to like to not tell them to collate evidence if that makes sense right um, because if you're sort of like one thing that you don't want to do is is make things worse by having a running list of of these grievances effectively that you've got against a partner who you suspect is controlling you um, and effectively forcing them to up the ante a little bit you know what I mean so I, I'd, I'd be very wary of advising anyone to to make things, but it's, I think it's more to what. So I, I would I would say if you think that you're in a controlling relationship, um, then chances are that that you are. You know what I mean? If that if that's how it feels, because a lot of this is about how it's making you feel and the impact it's having on you as a victim. So if if you think that you are in one, then go to you know because your evidence, the evidence that you will have, is what you say has been happening. You know what I mean? Because and it, so so I wouldn't be. You know, you probably have like text and things like on your phone. You have loads of evidence on your phone. They'll take your phone and they'll read your phone and download evidence on there. Things that have been deleted, things that you, you've forgotten about, will all be there. 
and then you'll be able to see a pattern from sort of correspondence that you've had. Um, but like I said, I'm, I, I wouldn't advise keeping evidence yeah. um, as such uh, because I think it can, it can put you in a vulnerable position. So, um, but your evidence is all in your own head, isn't it? It's, 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 it's your memories and your perceptions as to what's been happening. Um, and so, and so that being the case, I, 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 you know, I think you just go to the police at that stage who yeah. have, you know, particular um, sort of specialists, you know, trained to deal with this type of offending who will assist you with what you need to do next and advise how, how best to proceed. Um, and, you know, like I said, don't keep a list, don't try and implicate friends or family necessarily, you know, like by all means talk to whoever you can talk to just from a human perspective, but, you know, just be a bit wary of making things worse, you know. Yeah. What about uh, red flags at the beginning of a relationship before you get to the stage where it's become coercion? Is there anything that people should be keeping an eye out for? I know it's all very subjective. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that, and again, this isn't an exhaustive list of things, but if, if, you, if you look at, I think when people stop you doing things you would ordinarily do, that's, or, or when they are, where they don't accept that you, where you've been, you know what I mean? If you've been out with your friends and they think, if they're one of these jealous types, you think you haven't found it. I mean, a massive red flag for me if someone tried to look through my messages. You know what I mean? And I see this a lot from people. I, 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 it's often female friends of mine will have sort of said, and, oh, because he, he does this. And I'm like, that's an abuse. You know what I mean? Like, that's, <laughs> and, and it's difficult to sort of like raise that back, you know, as, as a, you know, as a friend and, and you know, you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to be in that position. But, mm. you know, cert- I, I think certainly where someone's very, very interested as to what you've been up to, unless you give it a good read, you know, if you're coming home covered in blood or something, then maybe, <laughs> but, you know, if it's just, if, it, if you know, I, I think we all know when it goes beyond just a general, where have you been, to actually wanting to control you and wanting to, to know who you've, uh, who you've been with and wanting to look through your messages and all that sort of stuff. Like at the point when people are interfering with your privacy, because you need to have privacy within a relationship as well, you know, so um, I think that would be a bit of a red flag um, for me. Uh, controlling what you're eating as well, that's that's weird, you know. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I wasn't allowed in the kitchen, but you see, as a feminist, that seemed really good in the kitchen. <laughs> right? Until I remember this one day where he was really ill and he couldn't cook, and I was like, well, I'll just make us some beans on toast. He's like, you're not going in there. You'll burn the place down. And that's, I was a bit like, oh, this feels really odd that he won't even let me cook when he's too ill to cook. I was starving. <laughs> right. Yeah. Probably not funny. Sorry. <laughs> now that I'm realising I was in that situation. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't open with it. <laughs> <laughs> it must be mortifying for those, for those victims of it to like reveal all that to, to people and it must be that embarrassment must yeah. be part of the reason that reluctance to come forward definitely there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a definite um, feeling of I, I, from what I can gather I'm basing this on sort of by reading on this sort of the academic reading around it as much as anything else and, and what, what you're taught when talking about it is that there, there, is, there is a definite sort of stigma attached and embarrassment about finding yourself in this position because you're deemed to be sort of like an adult who should have 
you should be able to control yourself and be in control of your own actions and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, I think that a lot of the concern about coming forward about this is that you don't want to sort of feel like you're embarrassed. You know, like often this has been going on for a long time and you told family and friends that you're all right and become entrenched in that position, you know, and, and it's difficult to get out of that. You know, you know, like any entrenched position, it's difficult to get out of this rut. Um, and often, like you said before, it, it, it will take maybe like an escalation of things to make people snap out of it. You know what I mean? Go back, no, this is too far now. Um, or, or just something that causes a third party to become involved without, you know, without you raising the awareness, you know, the, you know raising the alarm yourself. So, so yeah, I certainly think that um, sort of social embarrassment is um, a tool because it's part of the abusive process as well, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. like it's, it's often used by abusers to, to, to keep the victims quiet and, and away from, you know, one of the reasons, you know, a, a, a symptom of, of abuse is that you lose contact and become socially isolated. And, but that is also, you know, one of the reasons that, that they do it is because actually if you're not out with your friends, then you, you're not telling anyone, are you? You know what I mean? About what's going on. So yeah. it's this sort of like double, it's this, you know, double-edged sword. You know, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean? It's got this, it's, it's a circular issue. You know, it's, it's a yeah. sort of yeah. cycle, basically. No, one thing, I, just one last thing. Yeah. One thing I came across, which has got nothing to do with Married at First Sight, but when I was looking at coercive behaviour, there was a lot of podcasts about coercive parenting. And I was saying, okay. wow, that's a minefield because part of being a parent is being the one with the control, isn't it? Especially yeah. when they're really yeah. little. And yeah. I was just like, are we gonna are we gonna get to a stage where older children can take their parents to court? Or I don't I, I mean just I mean children can take their parents to court if their parents in you know if it's abuse, you know what I mean? And, yeah. um it's you know in so much that it's still lawful in this country to for you to assault your child, you know, to some degree. I know. With, not in Wales because we're better there. Well, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can still hate your child here. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> in, I don't have I don't have kids, so can I can I hit someone else's child? No, 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 sadly no. no. But, it's um, yeah. So, so I mean, I the the way that we treat each other. I'm, I'm just. I'm in the middle of writing a lecture at youth justice, so it's quite interesting. Oh, wow, okay. this point, um, is that the way that we treat children is is interesting, and that they have fewer rights than any other. Like you know, if, if there was another group that had the same restriction of rights that children have, um, then it would seem absolutely shocking, you know. So, yeah, um, yeah. and it's the fact that we are allowed to, you know, like that you know, you would be allowed to hit the most vulnerable person in society. Uh, but you're not allowed to hit someone who's big enough to defend themselves. You know, like that's the, it's yeah. just the yeah. sort of uh, position to find yourself in. Um, but do you think there's, the, is that because there's a natural assumption that you would, you would do everything to protect the most vulnerable person in society? But obviously that's flawed because people, loads of people don't do that, do they? So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it's just that it's deep. I, I genuinely think that it's, it's just um, tradition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one way to um, effectively that you're training a child like it's a dog you know what I mean and the one way to do that is to is to use physical chastisement to, to teach them lessons um, and and that you know parents should be allowed to, to do that in whatever way they want um, when you're within reason obviously go too far then then at that point it would become so but um, yeah it's I think it is just that it's, there's, there's definitely a sort of conservative with a small c 
um, thinking behind that it should that it's all right to hit your kids because my I, you know there's people like oh I was hit by my parents and I, there's nothing wrong with me at all and I was like well I don't think it's for you to decide whether there's anything wrong with you at all <laughs> <laughs> thinking that there might be you know so yeah um, I'm on a lot of gentle parenting forums and there's a lot of people will find themselves on there and they'll use that argument a lot. Oh, you woke lot, you're ruining it for the rest of us parents and making it harder. And so like, well, we're just trying to be kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, you know, my parents never hit me, so I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that was great. Thank you so much. I hope that was, uh, that was useful for anyone, anyone listening, but it's great to get some, get some, uh, actual professional insight into that was the most worthy episode we've ever done personally i didn't enjoy it i'd like to go back to just talking about i don't like her she's a dickhead and stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank you so much chris no thanks for having me on it was great nice to uh nice to meet you both as well yeah you too Mm -hmm.